Hello, welcome to Fusion Voices, the official podcast of NYU's Fusion Film Festival. Fusion's mission is to celebrate women and non-binary creators in film, television, and new media. I'm your host, Ailea Solano. Today's episode is a conversation from spring 2021 with film critic Drew Dry and host Carly Klein and Aspen Nelson. We want to thank our guests for her generosity and sharing her time with us. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. So hello and welcome back to Fusion Voices. I am Carly Klein, your host, and we have an amazing guest host, Aspen Nelson, here today who brought on a great person to interview. Would you mind introducing them, Aspen? Oh, for sure. So today we have Jude Dry, who is a critic and contributor at IndieWire. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. This is such a big opportunity because we are both students within the film world, learning, and now we get the expertise from someone that is literally in the industry itself. (laughs) Well, you flatter me. I I don't feel like an expert most days, but happy to share any knowledge I've gleaned over the years. So do you mind um, telling us how you got your your role in the industry, how it all started, whether it started when you were young or a couple years ago? Like... Yeah, so I started life as an actor, um, like many people. That was what I did as a kid, and that's sort of where I come to movies and film. My lens um, is through performance and acting and comedy. And when I moved to New York and I was, you know, doing odd jobs, I would freelance for a film website called Cinespec that is um, no longer. But um, I just wanted to like see free movies. And, you know, I always liked writing. Writing was sort of a secondary thing to performing. And then um, I got involved with um, Critics Academy. I did in 2013. And that is sort of, you know, you get to go to the New York Film Festival for free. You get to review stuff for the Lincoln Center blog and, um, and IndieWire. And that was where um, I first met Eric Cohn, who um, is head film editor and editor of IndieWire. And he, a few years after, you know, we stayed in touch and I would freelance for IndieWire. And then a few years after that, they had a full-time position opening and he tapped me to apply and I got it. And I've been there since 2016. I Yeah, almost five years now. That's amazing. And how long did you do the, um, what was it called again with the Academy? Critics Academy is just a three-week thing during the New York Film Festival. And anyone can apply. You don't have to have like major clips or anything, you know, making money as a film critic. It's really great if you're just starting out. So people your age should definitely know about it. And then the Industry Academy is for filmmakers, producers, PR people. Um, That's a little more competitive now, but I would definitely highly recommend anyone looking into either of those programs. Awesome. It sounds like such a great opportunity. That's so great you got to do that. It is, yeah. And in general, IndieWire has been so welcoming of my perspective and my critical voice. Um, And I really have to credit Eric and Dana, our editor-in-chief, for just sort of letting me, you know, giving me a long leash to kind of find the stories that I was interested in and, and the perspectives. And, you know, I wasn't hired to be the queer critic, but I got there and the stories I was doing did very well you know we are you know it's a business we have to look at you know what readers are interested in and they we weren't covering queer film in a very robust way and once I started doing that um the reader response was was very good and so I was able to sort of lean into that in television and film and shorts and podcasts and um really anywhere that I found my interests lying seemed to always 
hit big with our audiences just because, or our readers, um, just because um, not a lot of people were covering queer film in, in a kind of dedicated way. Obviously, you know, everyone's reviewing Moonlight, but what about every movie that doesn't get attention because of Moonlight? So um, exactly. that, that was really great. Do you have a specific work or piece recently that you reviewed or critiqued that is within the LGBTQIA community that really spoke to you that you really enjoyed critiquing or reviewing? Yeah, I mean, so that is my beat at IndieWire. Basically, everything I cover is is queer unless I'm getting um, as an assignment. You know, someone we have to has to cover this new release or sometimes at festivals I'll run the gamut but most of the stuff I cover is queer um the last thing I love love loved is called The Lady in the Dale have you guys heard about this it's on HBO Max um I mean it just came out but you should definitely check it out if you have HBO Max access it is a four-part docu-series about a trans woman named Liz Carmichael and she she invented this car in the 70s she was kind of like a scam not a scammer but kind of like an outsized like figure anyway she invented this three-wheeled car in the 70s called the Dale and she at the time was one of the only women in the industry this is obviously before stealth before this and you know she was sort of hailed as like oddity of like this woman running this auto company and it was kind of suspect like she claimed that it was would get amazing mileage and you know better gas mileage than anything on the on the market at that time and she kind of took a lot of money from people and wasn't clear that she actually knew anything about running a car company anyway people started digging into her and this particularly this LA television reporter Dick Carlson who um you know sort of later revealed in the series but if you do just google him he is tucker carlson's father yeah Yeah, really wild stuff so he basically did all these specials on her and eventually outed her as trans and then so her story kind of became conflated with the trans deception trope which is this sort of very harmful narrative that trans people are just tricking people and because she was kind of a con artist in her business dealings you know it got the story got conflated as that she was like masquerading as a woman just you know to avoid being caught for this like previous counterfeiting charge anyway the series is from the Duplass brothers executive produced and directed by Nick Camilleri and Zachary Drucker, who I don't know if you know her, but she was a consulting producer on Transparent. She's a filmmaker artist. She's really, really smart and very cool. Um, You know, I think Jay... Duplass probably met her on Transparent and he tapped her to co-direct this series with this guy Nick Camilleri who had sort of been working on it for many many years and the reason I bring this up is because I think a lot of times you know filmmakers are looking for trans stories queer stories and you know they don't involve trans or queer voices beyond sort of a consulting producer not to not to call out transparent you know because I think they did actually very well with trans crew and and writers and stuff but a lot of movies will you know bring someone on as a consulting producer which is you know depending on what you're doing like it could mean that they have a lot of creative control but it could also mean that they like watched a few cuts and gave some notes so Zachary I don't know what went on behind the scenes but I'm assuming this guy Nick like was maybe not psyched about giving up all his 10 years of footage to someone else to co-direct but like props to Jay Duplass for being like no we need this a trans eye 
to have full creative control here, to have the co-director title. And basically, you know, they then work together and she, they kind of redid a lot of the interviews. And it's a complicated story because no one had heard of this person. Like Zachary hadn't heard of her, probably because she's previously known as a sort of this deceiver. It was like this man masquerading as a woman. And the series is just like, walks that balance so so well it's edited really well it also has a lot of cool animation because they you know because of covid they had to kind of pivot and i think it pivoted really well so they sort of instead of recreations which you know a lot of documentaries would do they did sort of recreations by this kind of paper cutout animation and it's just a really interesting story you know regardless but what I really loved about it is the way Zachary in particular really like threads that needle because you a lot of the early you know story about her is pre-transition so you're kind of having interview talking heads interviews where they're they're using he him pronouns they're using her old name but it feels okay because you know this trans director is at the helm and you know as soon as as soon as they get post-transition, it never happens again. But, you know, it, it just, you can kind of rest easy listening to the story, knowing that a trans woman was shaping it. And I think that's really important and something that, and also it's just a really fun show. So The Lady and the Dale on HBO. And I wrote two pieces. I reviewed it and then I interviewed Zachary and Jay. And that was where I learned a lot of this backstory that I just told you. Oh my God. That's incredible. It's, it's really cool. I think this um, brings up like a bigger issue as well, especially when we're talking about trans representation, because it's so limited. And, you know, so much of the history of trans representation has been so negative and has had very, you know, negative and political implications as, um, you know, time has gone on with things like the bathroom bills and just social perception in general. So when it comes to stories like this, is it better to, in your opinion, like have the best representation possible, have the most positive, or is it better to show some of these like kind of nuances and um, dive into like, I guess, you know, the sort of seediness like in this um, particular uh, series? Well, you said the best representation. I mean, that's totally subjective, right? I would argue that this is the best representation because and transparent and euphoria because they are the most interesting pieces of art. I mean, if you're talking about sort of representation that is good for the movement, yes, I do think we need pieces like that. I mean, Katie Couric did this docu-series a few years back that I sort of panned because it was like this like clueless cis white woman trying to correct her mistakes in the past, which is when she asked Carmen Carrera if she had had, you know, bottom surgery on national television. And do you know about that famous kind of moment? That was I hadn't heard about that. Sort of a famous faux pas. Yeah. And then Laverne, so it was like, she's interviewing Carmen Carrera and then Laverne comes out after and backs Carmen up and is like, and kind of has a back and forth with Katie Couric about why that's not cool. And Laverne will say in interviews, I've even interviewed her and she will say, to her credit, she learned. Like she listened, she learned, and then she comes back two years later and she does this docu series that I basically said was like f- aimed at moms in the Midwest, which like so to me like as a film critic that's not a interesting piece of art to me. But yes, I recognize that we need moms in the Midwest to you know know more about trans issues from a positive light. So yeah, it's good that that it's good that that exists. I mean, I would also, did you see Disclosure? Yeah. Okay. 
So Disclosure, I gave it a B plus. I I liked it. Um, apparently they, you know, I heard from a friend of mine shot it, and she was like, "Jude was our only negative review." I was like, "That's not a negative review, you know." B plus is a very good review, but you know, was it doing like formally sty- stylistically interesting things with the documentary form? No. And like lots are lots of people doing really interesting documentaries these days. Yes, like you know. To me, like, I'll take a Circus of Books over a Disclosure any day. Something that's sort of... Did you see Circus of Books? No. That's another... Oh, I love that. That was this sort of documentary about... This woman, Rachel Mason, made it about her parents who ran this gay porn shop in L.A. And they're these, like, funny old Jewish straight couple that ran, like, the longest-running gay porn store in L.A. for 30 years. Oh, my God. Very cool. And she's making it about her parents, so there's a lot of, like, personal stuff. So it has that kind of hybrid energy that I really like. Anyway... Disclosure is great. Like, I didn't learn that much from it, but, you know, this is my job. So, but there's still, like, there's things I don't know. Yeah, is there a version of that movie that is more geared towards trans people who know, who have seen all these movies that they're discussing, that maybe goes into more depth, that maybe, like, includes more of Susan Stryker's commentary that's, like, a little more advanced level, yes, but I think they made the movie that uh, would be more approachable and accessible to wider audiences and that that's valuable too. That's why I gave it a B plus, you know. (laughs) As a critic yourself and someone who has seen so many things, I can already tell that you've just seen like so many things more than two people that are in the film school. Um, but I mean, it is my job. Yes, so. it is your job. But that's why I, I want to ask you this question. So do you have any recommendations for people or families that aren't as educated within the queer or the trans community? Not necessarily meaning they're not accepting, but they just don't want they just like generations mm. like my family. Uh, I, I tr- I've tried to find things or articles or movies to watch with them so they can educate and they understand it, but they still don't under understand it to an extent of like that it is a community. It's just not like one in a million people. Like, yeah. do you have works of art or things that can start com- like conversations within a household or within a group setting that could help people realize that there's a lot more to this? Mm. Do you mean like education wise or like education or rep or like education or representation that that starts a conversation rather than like lecturing someone? Mm. Uh, I love sex education. That is one of my favorite shows, and I think it's not blue. I mean, it, despite its title, it's really not. You know, it doesn't like show a lot of sex. It just talks about sex very frankly and and honestly. Have you guys seen Sex Education? Yes. On Netflix? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very approachable show. Probably, maybe not for parents, but for young people. And, you know, there's all sorts of sexualities and gender identities in that show. Um, Parents, I mean, Disclosure might be an interesting place to start, um, just because they might be familiar with some of those movies. You know, they talk about Silence of the Lambs. They talk about Soap Dish. You know, movies that they probably saw and didn't realize how harmful they were at the time. The Celluloid Closet is a, that's a, a classic from the 90s um, that basically does the same thing for queer film. So I see Disclosure as kind of like, you know, an addendum to Celluloid Closet. But Celluloid Closet talks about, is an amazing two-part 
series um, by these Oscar-nominated gay filmmakers, Jeffrey Katzenberg and uh, Rob Epstein. That's very informational. Because I think looking at representation, you know, I think media and movies have so much power. You know, if they're interested in... I think Milk is, you know, a really nice historical record of what they're interested in sort of gay civil rights movement. Um, Milk is the movie about Harvey Milk with starring Sean Penn. He was the mayor of San Francisco. What else? I mean, if you think they'd be into Pose, I think Pose offers a really... Oh, I love The best show. Amazing. Yeah, look at, you know, and you never know. I think that's the kind of show that, you know, if people like, if your parents or anyone likes a sort of, like that kind of episodic, like there's drama, there's... There's a story going on that's not just about, you know, the characters' identities and sexualities, but it is also so central to them. I mean, I, I like, personally, I learned a lot by just watching Pose. Yeah. Because it came out when I was, I think, 18 or 17 mm-hmm. or something like that. And I learned a lot because I, my whole family's from the North, but, like, I grew up in the South. And so I was not taught. That's why I went to New York. Like, I, I was like, I need diversity. I need artists. I need people that are just open to being whoever they want to be and myself as well because I mean I identify as a queer woman I have a girlfriend but like no one knew that down here and Mm -hmm. I'm not saying my family isn't very accepting it's just like the area and my school was so small and it was whitewashed and it was a great school but I just wasn't around it and like I swear to my I like I swear to my core that I will never let my kids grow up like that because it was just I didn't learn and then I started watching all these things so that's why I wanted to ask you as a person that is a critic um that knows all these things I just want more representation to show my family so they understand more which leads me to another question that I have I was reading your work about the happiest season do you mind talking a little bit about your critique about that movie um sure I mean did you like it happiest season I really only liked it because I love Dan (laughs) like I I only watched it to see him in the movie well he was the best part of the movie in Aubrey Plaza yes there were a lot of problems in it but that's why I watched it was for him Yeah, that was a fun one because I, you know, we get early access to things. So my review was one of the first reviews up and before anyone had seen it, really. And I was getting like hate on Twitter from people who were just like, there's like the case to obsessives, basically. Um, I was being called like homophobic and like lesbophobic and like, I don't know, I guess because my name is like gender neutral. Sometimes when I write a bad review of a lesbian movie, people just assume I'm like a cis dude. And then it came out and then everyone who actually kind of mattered basically agreed that it was terrible. That sounds very elitist, I shouldn't say that. But other critics who I followed, other celebrities, writers, comedians that I follow on Twitter were all like, this is shit. I mean, I guess some people liked it, but I mean, aside from like 
Oh, God. There was just so... Aside... Okay, first of all, setting aside all its political and race problems, I just thought it was, like, not very good or, or funny or, or interesting. You know, I just was like... That was one of those movies that you're just like, oh, my God. Like, every scene just felt like pulling teeth. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm come from the comedy world, like... When a comedy is bad, I'm just like, ooh, it's just so uncomfortable to me. I mean, I thought the writer, everyone's thought that, um, I'm so sorry, but the sister, I forget her name. She was Mary Holland, I think is her name. She's the co-writer. I thought, and she was the sister. People were calling her a breakout star. I thought every one of those, she was trying to be this like awkward character. And I, I almost thought it came off as like, I don't know. It came off as to me as like making fun of like people on the spectrum. It was just so like yeah, it was very unnecessary that character. I thought like very ableist, way over the top compared to the rest of the movie. Yeah, and then some critic critics were like, "Oh, she's so funny. She's the breakout star." I was like, "Are you kidding me?" So yeah, just didn't think it was very good or interesting or well written to start, and then I mean also just like the premise, like who cares? I think we're just so beyond. But I don't know. Maybe maybe tell me if I'm wrong. Carly because like I don't know like maybe people in the south like I think if it had been done well this story of like you know someone who comes out to her conservative family like that is a relatable thing to a lot of people but I also kind of feel like that is the story we've been telling for so long now you know it's like how trans cinema is like very over the transition narrative I think queer cinema has been long over the coming out narrative and it just felt really regressive it felt like it was like written by committee or like written for whatever studio Clea was pitching it to. And I love Clea Duvall's first movie, The Intervention, is incredible. And it's so funny. It's funny. It's, you know, it has queer elements to it. It's sort of a riff on the big chill. Um, it's very good. It was like, I kind of don't know what happened on Happiest Season. It was, I was very like, oh, like, what happened here? And then, you know, <laughs> to make... The family, this he's like, her dad is like, played by Victor Garber, a wonderful out gay actor, but to make the dad the like, he's like running for mayor of Pittsburgh and he's conservative, like he's obviously like a racist, rich white guy. It was just very weird and so wealthy with no commentary there. It was just seemed so tone deaf to me of like, yeah, we care about these like insanely rich white people, you know, and then we'll throw in like, a black son-in-law who's, I wouldn't even call him a supporting character. He was like a third tertiary character. And then you have these like mixed race kids who were like kind of evil. It's just like, that to me was the epitome of like white cluelessness of like, oh, we need a black character. So let's throw in this black guy. And then, oh, we wrote these kids as just kids. And we're not even think about the fact that we just made these biracial children like steal something. It was just so just like they didn't think about it, right? It's like, <laughs> and then, you know, a lot of people read my review and were like, oh, this is too much, like <laughs> that I'm being nitpicky or something for noticing these things. And I'm just like, I don't think it's that hard to ask like a queer white woman to think twice about who she's casting, you know? And like Aubrey Plaza was great. Dan Levy were both great. But like one of those characters could have been a person of color, like, I just thought it was almost insulting to throw in like this black brother-in-law with like three lines. Anyway, I hated that movie. <laughs> um, but going off of that, I was reading some of your articles and I was looking at the comments and particularly for that one, people got so heated about the fact that you were criticizing it 
And I was wondering in general, like, do you often get these type of like negative criticisms for like on comments from your work just for doing your job? And how do you react to that and like cope with that? Um, I mean, I typically don't read the comments, but I mean, that one was interesting because um, I, I told you about the Twitter response. I mean, probably what you read is similar to what I was getting on Twitter. I don't know. I guess it's sort of a rite of passage at this point. Like it doesn't happen to me that often. It happens to my colleagues a lot. <laughs> my colleague David Ehrlich is sort of renowned for having very broad opinions and, and strong opinions about, about movies. And he's like both loved and hated by the sort of film nerd community. So, you know, I think getting strong responses is just part of the part for the course. And I try and yeah, it's my job. Like I'm a critic. I'm supposed to, you know, people don't have time to watch everything and people want to know what's good. Like I try and think about the reader. I'm not just writing it for, you know, industry folks. Like I'm thinking about the average movie watcher, you know, who's going to sit down and doesn't really care that, you know, Happiest Season was, is written by a, a lesbian and directed by a lesbian and or doesn't care about the fact that oh this is the first holiday romance with two you know lesbian leads played with an out actress in one of them and you know they just want to watch a good movie and to me it's like I would never recommend that movie to anyone like it's stupid but or I would say yeah if you want a really stupid holiday comedy that you can watch and make fun of while you're like making dinner Sure. But like, yeah, it's my job. I'm not going to give something a pass because that then reflects on me as a critic, you know, but I've also had things where, you know, I have my colleague at work, Zach Scharf is very opinionated as well. And he'll make fun of me for like, I gave Baywatch like a, a B, you know, I thought it was like, I had, I had seen so much crap like that month. I had, I think I had also reviewed like this movie Chips, you know, with Dax Shepard that was just like so terrible and homophobic. And then Baywatch came along and it was like kind of funny and like not really problematic. And it was The Rock and I gave it like a B and, you know, so he makes fun of me for that. That sometimes I'll give, you know, a good review to something that's like not great just because it's not like terrible, you know, but you have to also evaluate things like on where they're coming from. So I'm not gonna review Baywatch the same way I would review a Sundance movie or, you know, a Cannes movie. Um, I'm going to review it as what it is and what it's trying to be. And, you know, compared to Chips, Baywatch was good, you know, but (laughs) doesn't mean it's necessarily good. Yeah, just comparatively. On that same note, like, do you feel like things like Rotten Tomatoes, like Star Meters, Metacritic, do you find those things very reductionist in, like, trying to trying to find like what a movie score is or trying to find how people will like it and like reactions to it or yeah so a lot of people have a lot of opinions on Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic um this this is a good question and it comes up a lot for critics again like even me as a when I'm looking for a movie to watch like sure I look at Rotten Tomatoes but then I maybe look at like the top critics and actually read the reviews from the critics who I like and trust but you know and a lot of times something I hated will have like a pretty high score on like I don't think it's necessarily accurate for anyone who sort of has their own tastes and opinions but you know and famously many sort of like cult films have like pretty bad Rotten Tomato scores, but that's what makes them cult films. You know, like, I don't think John Waters is, like, 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. But, yeah, and it's interesting. I was looking, actually, they have a list of sometimes when I'm 
making lists myself or trying to reference things. They have a list of like 200 highest reviewed queer films or something on Rotten Tomatoes. And a lot of it, it's interesting because a lot of it, um, like recent stuff kind of, it favors recent stuff for some reason. Just because like Rotten Tomatoes wasn't around before. I think with older films, they just kind of like aggregate the reviews up from the time. So for some reason, you know, it's like Carol and Moonlight are like at the top of that list. And you've got sort of older stuff like Greg Araki films like down at the bottom. Just because like, yeah, at the time, like queer films weren't even getting um, big reviews or the new queer cinema of the 90s was kind of had as its core image was a kind of low budget indie rough feel so those things probably weren't getting great reviews because of that too so yeah I think it's useful for maybe more contemporary stuff but yeah it's sort of like a it's a reality of the industry that you know it's a necessary evil I guess and maybe not it's not even evil it's like a necessary mediocre thing (laughs) yeah no that makes sense and so I kind of wanted to talk about non-binary representation because as someone who's non-binary I almost never see myself represented in anything and it's you know kind of difficult and so when we do get either a sliver or even just someone who's kind of coded as gender divergent in some way it's like I feel like you have to like take that and grab that you know what I'm saying because it's like all we're given so I was wondering what your opinion was on non-binary representation in the limited amount that we do have and if you expect it to grow for the future. Um, I definitely expect it to grow over the future. I, I know that it is. I know many projects and things that are casting. I know that, you know, non-binary actors are in demand or more so than they were. But I mean, you're right. I mean, that's what queer representation used to be like. And in some ways still is that like it's so rare I mean that's where that instinct to sort of like want to like happiest season comes from right is like that we get so few movies which you know if you're actually paying attention to movies isn't true like yeah if you're only watching what comes on Hulu on Thanksgiving sure but you know there's like there's so many amazing queer films out there now you just have to kind of look for them non-binary representation I mean yeah I I think about Taylor on Billions, Asia Kate Dillon. They were certainly very instrumental, but like that's kind of it, right? I'm sure there's more characters on TV shows that I'm not thinking of right now. Um, I think one day at a time. I think the protagonist is non-binary. Either that or they have a non-binary friend. I was trying to do some research yeah. on it because it's like one or two characters right now, right. and I think they. Oh, Vita. Vita has um, Eddie, who's a really cool character. They're interesting because they're like I think the actor themselves is not. It's like uses she, her, but is like a very butch out lesbian. But I liked that a lot because they were older and you sort of see them like, oh wait, sorry, I have that in reverse. The actor is non-binary. The character, I'm messing this up. Sorry, my my friend's on that show, so I shouldn't be messing this up. It's one or the other. Sorry, the actor's non-binary and the character uses she, her. And then I think at some point, I mean, unfortunately that show which I loved, was um, canceled early. But um, I think they were starting to, they were going to have a whole storyline of Eddie kind of, did you watch the third season of Vita? No, I haven't yet. Okay, there's an episode where like this femme comes on to them and I think she kind of like assumes that they're non-binary or trans and then they kind of have to like grapple with that. But um, yeah, I wish they would have explored that more. So yeah, that's what it is. The actor's non-binary, the character was not. So I guess that doesn't count as representation but the actor is um 
who isn't um Amanda Stenberg came out as non-binary, yeah. which was interesting. But then kind of had fans were sort of like correcting her Wikipedia and stuff. And she kind of was like, don't do this. That was interesting. Like, I think she uses she and they, but like that I'm sort of watching because, you know, I think it is still really hard in the industry. And like, basically she didn't want to like not be considered for cis roles. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest issues that it seems like a lot of non-binary actors are facing is like, because they're more cis roles that they might have to take on a sort of cis persona in some way so they can like get those roles, which is frustrating because that shouldn't have to be the case. Yeah. Oh, another thing I want to say is that for some reason, because I think Asia Kate Dillon was the first one, um, it's like non-binary representation has kind of um, now become thin white AFAB people. And obviously, I think more AMAB non-binary representation would be fabulous. Oh, you know what? I did recently watch P Valley on Stars, And I don't know if they ever, I mean, there's, there's this character named Uncle Clifford, who, I think that's their name, uses she, has a beard, wears wigs. Very interesting what they do with that character. I think it's, I mean, it's she, it's he. I don't think they ever use they, but it's very clear that they are gender fluid. So that was really fun. So that's, that's an AMAP. Yeah. GNC representation. But I mean, it's also interesting because there's so much diversity across the gender nonconforming spectrum, right? So that character might not have identified as non-binary or those writers might have wanted to leave it ambiguous. In which case, how do you sort of get the word out that you're doing this cool thing? You know, I think it's very... And TV tends to do this thing of like, and we have this non-binary character, like put it in the press release, like tick off that box kind of thing, which doesn't lend itself to authentic or interesting representation. It's much more interesting for a writer to, like on P-Valley, to just kind of write this character, not really with any like agenda and just kind of like plop them in the middle of this world and see what happens. But I think a lot of network television in particular tends to be written like by committee or by the studios saying like, oh, we want this kind of character. And they tend to have a lot less imagination. Yeah. As a critic who critiques mostly uh, queer films, queer shows, are you ever bothered or annoyed by representation of queer people, anyone within the community that aren't actually within the community as like they don't identify but they are acting or casted in that role straight actors playing gay yeah like i know sometimes it's brilliantly performed but is it overdone what is your opinion um so i have a a critic friend kyle turner who like hates this discussion and thinks it's like so ridiculous so some people are sort of bored by the discussion i think that For so long, queer actors were not allowed to be out, otherwise it would ruin their careers. And I think every actor who comes out is doing a service to all, to everyone else. And, you know, I think, yeah, it's a thing that happens. Like, straight actors play gay and they get Oscar nominations. Like, we all know that. Yeah. Do I love Call Me By Your Name? Yes. It's a beautiful film. And I wouldn't have, although now Army Hammer kind of canceled, but. Uh, It's okay. Timothy all the way. Okay. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. You know, Luca Guadagnino, the director, is gay, and so is the writer. But for some reason, you know, there is no sex scene in that movie. Um, and some people get kind of this is sort of a different question, but like some people get kind of like, why does there always have to be a sex scene? I'm sure Luca could have made them do it, but I'm guessing that like there was something around 
either of those actors' discomforts that he just didn't do it, you know? Like, I don't know. That's a guess. I have no idea. And he could have just done that for... His quote is that he didn't want to infringe on the character's privacy by showing their sex scene. Um, That's what Luca says. And he's a gay director, and many of his films have gay sex in them. You know, was it like, was it a decision so that the movie would get more attention and be more Oscar, you know, have better awards potential? Um, Was he right? Maybe he was right, you know? The movie does, did very well. But yeah, I mean, I liked that movie, but I definitely felt like like bros who just happen to fuck energy right it doesn't have like a queer energy like the actors like that scene where they're hiking where they're like it's sort of towards the end it's it's like their last trip together and they're kind of like jostling each other and like they look like dudes you know they look like straight dudes trying to play gay to me they're like roughhousing and that's supposed to be their like sexual tension it's like Gay men don't interact like that. I'm sorry. You know, even probably the broiest of the bros, like they touch each other with a, a lot more tenderness than that and are more comfortable being physical with each other. So yeah, it did detract a little bit for me, but that doesn't mean I don't think like straight actors can play gay. But yeah, I mean, I didn't think there was that much chemistry in Happiest Season between Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis. Mackenzie Davis is not queer. But at the same time, you know, you wouldn't ever want, and Kristen Stewart has said this, you would never want someone to tell a gay actor that they can't play straight, right? Exactly. So that's the thing. Then it becomes this double standard. But at the same time, it's like straight people have more privilege in this in Hollywood and society and there are fewer gay roles. And if authenticity in casting like leads to like, some up-and-comer getting a chance. I think it it should be... And, you know, no one's, like, canceling movies. I mean, I think with trans people, you know, we've successfully made it so that people do not cast cis people as trans people anymore. And I think that is right and good. And that's a little blurrier with queer people. Because also, you know, an actor could not be out. And that's their decision. But at the same time, okay, if you're not out because you don't want it to affect your career, then... You're not experiencing the stigma, uh, you know, that a gay actor might. So you are still getting cast as straight in straight roles. So you don't really need to take the queer role. You know, it's like a little, but on the other hand, it's like Chloe Grace Moritz did Cameron Post before she came out. And like a month after that movie came out, she, you know, she announces that she has a girlfriend. So you want to obviously leave room for queer young people to be, you know, who are in the public eye to not have to come out you know before they're ready but yeah I think gay I think the movie is better when the actors are queer um I think it'll it'll just make the movie better and like I as a critic am allowed to evaluate the film in that way you know I think that's a valid for me to bring that into my critique of a film I'm not going to say these movies should be canceled the way I would with with a trans film and even I've even given certain trans films passes. Like there was this movie, um, Girl, this French film that um, played Cannes two years ago that was about a ballerina. And, you know, the actor was queer, but was not trans. And, you know, I, I it's hard to cast a ballerina, right? Like there were these beautiful ballet scenes. So Um, and dance scenes that, you know, you needed to cast a ballerina in that role. And so what are the odds you're going to find a French trans ballerina, you know, who's 16 and whatever. I mean, that movie had other issues, but it's not like I'm a blank, going to blanket 
cancel any movie that doesn't cast queer actors, but I think it's a factor. It's going to be a factor in my review, and it's probably going to distract at some point, if I had to guess. Well, we should wrap up and kind of close this out. Um, we we're so Thank very you so much. thankful, and this was such an amazing conversation. I felt like I was talking to a friend. Like, I felt like I was talking to someone I knew. Like, it was awesome. But do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think things are ch- things ch- are changing, but progress is slow, especially in Hollywood. So, you know, I think probably scripts and movies are in development right now that we won't see for two or three years that are really exciting and showing queer people and people of color and trans people in all sorts of amazing um, lights and situations. So if you ever feel discouraged, just like hold on to that, that I think, you know, oftentimes it takes a while for culture to catch up, especially in movies and TV. And yeah, just make your stuff and, you know, use them if you can. I mean, hire them. Like, I mean, unless they're terrible, but eventually they're going to want to be working with you. So that's been useful to me is like, I I do occasionally work with cis men, but I make sure they're... (laughs) up to my feminist standards and I make sure that like I'm in charge and they respect me as an artist and they are doing you know obviously we're collaborating but like that they understand that it's my vision and that they respect that and want you know you can use their skills to execute your vision you know as long as they're not like totally insubordinate but also hire women and trans people too but I'm just saying if you have to hire a cis dude just make sure he's like on the level and will you know follow orders obviously well thank you so much jude you thank you guys you're a ray of sunshine thank you guys for having me this was so great thank you for listening to this episode of fusion voices with jude dry to never miss a fusion update follow us on instagram at fusion film fest once again i was your host and editor ilea solano and if you like this episode check out our other episodes anywhere you get your podcasts a special thank you to our guests, Drew Dry, our faculty advisor, Susan Sandler, and the entire Fusion Voices team, Skylar Barefoot, Laura Lindsay, Riley Foster, Annika Brown, and Margo McCaughey.